the title of today's message, the first three verses is where we're going to land. The title of the message is The Measure of Love. I, I thought about calling it Love's Yardstick because that's a measuring unit. Uh, it has three feet in it. There's three points today, but uh, I'm going to try to stick with a theme here, talking about the measure of love this week, the character of love next week, and then the eternality, the eternal nature of love uh, the following week as we walk through this entire little chapter, okay? It's 13 verses, but it's packed full. It's one of the most famous ch- chapters in the Bible. And in context, I want you guys to know that 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 is really talking about spiritual gifts and how they're to be used in a loving way, which glorifies and honors God. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14 talks a lot about this gift that the Corinthians were hung up on about speaking in tongues. And uh, they, they really uh, were infatuated with this idea that anybody could speak in tongues was so much superior spiritually than anybody else in the church. And we're going to address that a little bit today. We'll get into it a little more in the weeks ahead. But I, I want to begin by just saying how often, how many times in our lives we try to measure our value or our worth. What am I worth? You know, what am, what's my value? Where do I find that? And I'll be honest with you, there was a time in my early 20s uh, when I was in school, and um, I, I, I was working more than 40 hours a week trying to get through school, and I thought my value came from how hard I worked. I really did. I poured myself into my work, and I, I tried to do the best job that I could, tried to impress my boss, tried to impress my girlfriend, tried to impress people, thinking, man, he's a hard worker. And you can get kind of sucked up in that sometimes in life, really easily, in fact. Um, there's lots of ways. I mean, some people find their self-worth in their uh, appearance, in their maybe their beauty, or uh, how they look, or how they dress, or what brand of clothes that they wear. Some people, um, on their productivity or on their talent, man, we, we set a high value uh, on athletes a lot. We, we really put them on a pedestal, um, and, and sometimes that pedestal gets knocked down as it has a lot recently. But we also place value on people who are intelligent, uh, you know, people who have lots and lots of education. I'll tell you this about education. You can have more degrees than a thermometer and not be worth the mercury that's inside. And so you've got to be careful with that. You're not better than somebody else because you're very smart. Uh, it's how you use that intelligence to serve God and others that's going to matter. Even family name. Some people take such pride in their family name. Nothing wrong with that. But if your family name is the only place where you derive value and worth, something's wrong. And so Paul, in these first three verses, is giving us a different biblical way to see what we're really valued at. And he uses the measure of love. Love is the true measure of everything that we say, everything that we do, everything that we have, and everything that we are. If our lives aren't marked by love, the world will not know, first of all, that we belong to Jesus Christ. If we don't understand the love that He's given us, it's impossible to reciprocate that to other people around us. And so we begin to see, no matter what the world thinks of me, no matter whether I'm, I, I'm, I'm attractive or unattractive, no matter whether I'm in excellent shape or out of shape, no matter whether I'm famous or rich or have accolades or intelligence or whatever it may be, those things don't determine my worth before God. God looks at me through the prism, through uh, the lens of His Son, Jesus Christ. And He's given me and you, saved ones, 
His righteousness, His love, so much so that the Lord says, forever will I be with you. Never will I leave you or forsake you. No one, not Satan himself, can snatch you out of my hand. I've sealed you with the Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption. I've promised to be with you all the days of my life. I've promised to work in you, to sanctify you, to make you more like Jesus, to produce these talents and abilities in you that are only Holy Spirit given, and then to give you an eternity in my presence forever and ever. And man, what beautiful promises there are. And so it it behooves us to understand what God's love is and what it's like and how much you're truly worth. Because God sees you as of infinite worth. He sees you as worthy enough to sacrifice His only begotten Son so that He could save you and love you and bring you to be with Him forever. And so this measure of love. Without love, our best accomplishment all of them are nothing in God's sight. Paul applies this measure of love to three areas in these three verses. And I love kind of how it's broken down as we read this text and as you look at it with me. But he looks at a person's speech, a person's gifts, and a person's sacrifice. How do we stack up our, our, our speech? Is it of love? Our gifts or our talents or our abilities, are they used in love? Our sacrifices, are we sacrificing anything for the sake of love, for the cause of love? And that really helps determine how God measures what we're doing in life, how, how valuable to the kingdom we are. And so we begin with number one, which is speech. And we look at what Paul says in verse one. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, commentators are a little bit divided. You know, as, as you study this, you kind of look to see what others who have gone before you have said about this. Uh, they, they're a little bit divided on what Paul means when he says, speaking in the tongues of men and angels. Some say it's just a, a common way to refer to eloquent speech. And I agree with that. Uh, the person who speaks in the tongues of men and of angels speaks with great eloquence or style. Others point out that this verse takes place in the context of this discussion of spiritual gifts, especially the gift of tongues, which I've said already, the Corinthian church was enamored with this gift. And so these commentators feel that it must refer to the gift of speaking in tongues here. Either interpretation is possible, uh, but the Corinthians actually struggled with both both of these ideas, and we do too sometimes. Um, We we put people on pedestals, and he's talking specifically about speech. When somebody's well-spoken, we think more highly of them. When somebody is able to speak or do things spiritually that we aren't, sometimes we put them on a pedestal as well. And it was dividing the church in Corinth. And so Paul needed to step in and say, stop dividing yourselves amongst the elite and the common. Stop dividing yourselves amongst the more gifted and the less, or the more talented and the less, or the ones who can speak better and the ones who are uneducated. Stop dividing yourselves because that's only hurting the body. He says we need to bring love into the equation and understand how it all fits. And so we understand this, that a person who uses many words or high and lofty speech uh, is not necessarily communicating anything of value. You can speak, uh, as, uh, as was told in the, in the New Testament, about uh, those who stand on the corners, the Pharisees, and by their many words they believe that they are heard. And that's not necessarily the case. You don't have to say much to be able to say a lot. And sometimes even a look will do. I mean, everybody's been looked at by their mama or by their wife, uh, maybe by your husband, and even a simple look can say volumes. And so we understand this. 
a lot of people can say a lot without not anything really being said. And the Corinthians in Paul's day were talkers. You've got to think about this Greek culture. They were debaters. They were philosophers. They loved to give these eloquent speeches and uh, Socrates and uh, uh, all of those that were uh, just heroes of that day and age. You look at who they were. And the people valued those people of greater importance than others. They had eloquent speech and linguistics and uh, they, they even, the Corinthians, looked down upon Paul because he wasn't the greatest speaker. I found this verse, and I think it's interesting what the Corinthians said about Paul. 2 Corinthians 10.10. 10. Um, I don't think I have this on the screen, but just listen to this. It says, the Bible says, For they say, I'll tell you something real quick. Anytime anybody begins, they said, Do you know what they're saying? Do you know what they said about you? Do you know what they want? Anytime that it's so ambiguous and somebody begins something with they said, usually it's not worth a hill of beans to listen about what comes afterwards. It's usually not. Now, if you told me, hey, Ben Rouse said, I'm going to take some stock in that, right? Uh, if you tell me that Jennifer Matthews said, I'm going to perk up and listen. But if you just say they said, it doesn't really matter much. And that's why I want to preface this quote from Scripture, 2 Corinthians 10.10 with, For they say, his, Paul's letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and unimpressive, and his speech is of no account. Um, Paul himself said that he wasn't the most gifted of speakers. He didn't want to be. That wasn't his mission on earth, is to impress everybody and to give these persuasive speeches so that everybody would be hooked on his every word. He didn't need that. You don't need that. When the Word of God is coming from our lips, when the Gospel is what's being proclaimed, when the love of Christ is being spilled out of us, everything changes. Because it's not about what a man says. It's not about philosophy. It's about the Lord's Word, His Spirit working through the power of His Word. Jesus the the Word made flesh, doing something powerful. The conviction of the Lord coming upon a person. We don't have to be eloquent. You could be uh, the most basic person as far as linguistic skills go and still come up here and share your testimony and it could change the world because of the power of God at work. It's amazing that if we just use this Word, that is where our power lies, our foundation, our strength, and all of our authority as believers. And so, uh, Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 4. I think we do have this one on the screen. Paul said, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech, that word is eloquence, or human wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear. It's amazing to hear Paul say this. He says, I even came with much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in clever, persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. To put another way, I, that's my paraphrase. Paul said, I relied upon the power of the Holy Spirit to do these things. I tell you guys, there's power there. Power. When we open our mouths in those moments of distress, when we're unable to speak a word or utter a cry, and yet the Holy Spirit is interpreting that to the Lord God. Jesus at the right hand of the Father is making intercession on our behalf, and our words are filled with power and authority. When we speak the Word of God, when we read the Word of God, God's Spirit goes forth, and the Bible tells us that His Word will not return unto Him void. It doesn't go out empty. It always has some effect. 
One of the problems in the Corinthian church was over this matter of speech. And it led to divisions, divisiveness. Think how divisive your words can be. Think about how put-downs and gossip, hypocrisy, speaking out of the other side of your mouth, stabbing people in the back, talking down about people, looking down on people, talking about somebody's family or their disabilities or their problems in life or that they lost their job or that they lost their spouse and how pitiful they must be now or their children don't behave so therefore I'm going to talk about them that they must not be good parents. It happens in church. And it's only divisive. Our speech that comes out of our mouths should be filtered through love. And if it's not loving, we shouldn't say it. Your mama always told you, mine did too, if you don't have nothing nice to say about somebody, don't say anything at all. Well, the Lord's telling us that. The golden rule is to treat others the way that you would desire to be treated. Speak about others the way that you would want to be spoken about. It is not hard, and yet it is infinitely hard for us because we're very judgmental as people. Christians and unchristians, non-Christians alike, we, we tend to judge, and it comes out through our lips and off of our tongue. James devotes an entire chapter about the tongue, and so it's something that we must tame. The Corinthians looked upon those like Apollos as a hero in the faith over Paul. Because Apollos used bold language. He was persuasive and eloquent. And Paul wasn't necessarily those things. What happened is the Corinthian church began to look down on and judge people who weren't as flowery and well-spoken. Not only this, but the Corinthians were obsessed with this gift of tongues. Now let me define what the gift of tongues is to you, what speaking in tongues is. The, the, The spiritual gift of tongues is the Holy Spirit given ability to speak in a language which you have not learned. Not hard. Well, I don't know why we make such a difficult deal about this, that it's so mysterious and confusing and hard to believe. Acts chapter 2, what happened on the day of Pentecost? As the 120 were praying, the Holy Spirit came down upon them on that day of Pentecost. And He filled them with the Spirit. And one of the manifestations of the Spirit that was outward was that these people could speak in unknown languages, in tongues that were not common to themselves. It wasn't, listen, I I took, I don't know why I did this, I took a semester of Japanese in college. Dumb, all right? One semester didn't do anything. I could say, konnichiwa, you know, I mean, that's about it. I don't know the language, but if I were to immediately come up here and start speaking to you in Japanese, for one, I don't know that anybody here speaks Japanese, so it wouldn't do anybody any good. It would be like, hey, look at me. I can speak Japanese. Y'all don't know what I'm saying, but I'm better than you are. Same thing happens with tongues. I've said in churches, I have friends that are charismatic, and you probably do too, and I don't want to knock my brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. But I have been told on numerous occasions that I must not have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. I must not be filled with the Holy Spirit because I can't speak in tongues. I'm going to tell you what, I don't need to be baptized in that Spirit. I have been filled with the Holy Spirit of God at the moment that I was redeemed and saved by Jesus Christ. And you have too. You have the Holy Spirit that's living within you. You have all the power that you need to declare the Gospel and the Word of Jesus. Guys, this is our measure of love. The Holy Spirit lives within us. He works out all things for good. He's our God. He's our Savior. He's giving us this grace. And it manifests itself 
through love. And so I'll tell you this about, uh, about the gift of speaking in tongues. On that day, in Acts chapter 2, in Jerusalem, there were millions of people that were gathered together for the day of Pentecost, for the feasts of Pentecost. Millions of Jews from Africa, from Asia, from different tribes, from different nations, from different tongues or languages. And they were all gathered there that morning. And what happens is the Holy Spirit is doing a work. And three things were evident that day. God gave those disciples the ability to speak in unknown languages to them so that all of those known people that spoke different languages, could hear the gospel clearly presented to them in their own tongue. They understood what Peter was saying. Even though Peter may not, I don't know, I don't know if he understood or not, but he was speaking it. As it came out of his mouth, something miraculous was happening, and people who could not understand Koine Greek, the Greek language that they spoke, were able to hear it in their dialect. The second thing that happened when the Holy Spirit was uttering through them was that God was being glorified. If God's not glorified in the way that you speak, it's worthless. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 says. The third thing that happened when they were speaking in tongues is that people were edified or built up. Now here's the deal. Today, I encourage you, you want homework or something to chew on this week, go read 1 Corinthians 14. Okay? Just go read it. It talks a lot about the value of tongues, the value of speaking in tongues, uh, and, and what's needed there. I am off base if there's not an interpreter present today. Because for me to say, ma, 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 I might have just told you the greatest treasure of heaven, but you didn't understand it. And if there's nobody there that can tell you that, you're off base. You're not scripturally doing what the Bible says. You need an interpreter present for those so that we can hear the gospel, glorify God, and be edified or built up. It does no good if I speak to you somehow that you don't understand because it can't build you up. And so the, the Corinthians were enamored with this gift of tongues. And guys, we don't need this today. I am what you would call a cessationist, okay? And you may understand or not understand what that is, but I believe that some of these spiritual gifts were done away with at the conclusion of the Bible being written. I believe that we don't need apostles anymore, for instance. We don't need to speak in tongues anymore, not when we have defined languages, not when we have the completion of the gospel, and not when we have the Holy Spirit living within us. I believe that 1 Corinthians 13 tells us of these spiritual gifts that remain are faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. So that if you can focus on faith, if you can focus on hope, and you can focus on loving people, Man, you're going to do all you can do. You're going to give all you can can. You're going to edify people, glorify God, and build the kingdom of God. And so, um, I, I want to say one more thing about 1 Corinthians 13, and I'm going to move on from tongues. We could talk a lot about that. But 1 Corinthians 13.8 says that love never fails. It says, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. The word there is to be stilled or restrained. As for knowledge, it will pass away. The New Living Translation 
says it this way, Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. Guys, the reason why I even bring this up is because the Corinthian church struggled with it. We may not struggle with that. We may struggle with other ways of speaking that we gossip about folks or or talk about them. But any special talent or gift doesn't give the gifted one some special status above others. There's not elevations in the church. We're all equal, lowly humbled at the foot of the cross as we look up to our glorious God. Those who speak in the language, be that of men or of angels, aren't more important What happens when that is the case is it leads to divisions in the bodies, cliques in the church. Man, that's the in-group over there. That's the out-group over there. Those people are special and elite. Those people are common and ordinary. Those people are big givers. Those people don't give at all. Those people pray really well. Those people can't even pray out loud. Those people are teachers. Those people, they just come on Sunday mornings. Those people, and we begin to say who's who and what's what. And guys, that's not love. We don't create any more divisions than this world has already set upon us. The church is supposed to be a place that brings healing and hope and covers over a multitude of wounds. That's what love does. The best measure of our words is not splendor or eloquence, but love. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no unwholesome talk proceed from your mouth or, or come out of your lips, but only what is helpful for building others up and bringing grace to your hearers. Whatever you say, however you conversate, whatever you type even on your social media statuses, all conversations should be done in love. And here's the question. What can I say that will build this person up? What can I say that will encourage this person or benefit them or maybe draw them closer to God? And if there are no positive answers to those questions, we probably don't need to be saying them. God measures our words by our love. In other words, if love isn't the motivation behind our words, what we're saying is just noise. The world doesn't need any more noise. It doesn't need any more chatter. It needs to hear the truth in love spoken from people who truly know Jesus Christ. The second thing that Paul talks about is gifts. Look at verse 2. He said, If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. Every single person that God's created has special gifts and talents. Bar none. What you do with those may develop them. It's like most other things If you don't work out those spiritual muscles, they atrophy and become less and less useful. But God's blessed you with them. What you've done with them is on you. 1 Corinthians 12 lists a lot of them. He says, some people have been blessed with wisdom, some with teaching, some with knowledge, some with healing, some with faith, some with speaking in tongues, some with interpreting those tongues, some with miracles or prophecy or discernment. Some with helps or helping others. Some with administration. That's a small list of some of the gifts that God has given. You have a gift. You have probably multiple gifts, but everybody has at least a gift given from God. And if it's from God, it's a good gift. It's not a bad one. The problem is not the gifts because they're God's ideas. The problem is 
the misuse of those gifts. Maybe we misunderstand how important they are or how useful they are. Maybe we put improper emphasis. We put too much on some gifts and not enough on others. Maybe you deem me as the pastor more important than you as the church member. Not true. I have a different calling. My gifting is different. Maybe you value Miss Teresa or Brother Ben or Brother Brian or somebody like that as more than you. Listen, we have different gifts than you, but we're no better than you. None of us are better than another. We are all valuable. And guys, here's the beautiful thing. Our gifts are what makes us unique. There is not another Teresa Gomez. There is not another Jacob Walker. There is not another Alicia Daughtry. There is not another Jean Neal. There is not another Terry Littrell. What giftings we have make us useful. You know what would have happened if I tried to change that stuff out in that sign right there? I'd be dead, Terry. I'd, my hair would be even spikier than it is, okay? I'd be fried out of my mind because I would have touched some wires. But you have a talent and an ability, not just in that, but in many things. But that's one of your giftings. How do you use those things to glorify God, to bless other people, and to edify your, your brothers and sisters in Christ? These gifts are what make us unique. But the beautiful thing is, is that when we use our gifts properly, they're also what makes us united and healthy and strong. You know, um, I don't know if you guys go to the zoo very often. Uh, we have little kids, and we love to go to the zoo. And there are certain animals that we always have to see. And Sperry and Declan will always ask them, um, what do you want to see at the zoo? And Sperry's like, I want to see a giraffe, and I want to see an elephant. And Declan's like, I want to see the monkeys. And that's probably about right for him. That's par for the course. Um, but I always love to see the meerkats. I love those little things. I don't know if you know what a meerkat is. It's a gopher, basically. Uh, they're so funny. They stand up on their back legs, and you'll see them. And some will be tunneling and burrowing, and some will be standing up. And some, you don't know what they're doing, and you think, hey, that's Clyde. There's a Clyde in every village, you know. I mean, the thing is, though, is that in meerkat communities, every single meerkat has a role. And the little ones that you see up on top that are standing there looking around, they're called sentries. They're, they're lookouts. And then you've got others that are workers. And you've got each one filling these roles, and they, they, they serve the community together by doing their individual thing. But their gifting blesses them all. The same is true in the church. How many times are we called a body with many parts? But guys, I promise you this. If my hand stopped working... I couldn't ever have studied and typed out my message. If my eyes quit working, I, I could learn in a different way, but I would sure be hindered. If my mouth stopped working, I wouldn't be able to proclaim the message to you. But when you put it all together, I'm able to do what God's called me to do. When you put us all together, we're able to do what God has created us to do. That's to glorify Him, to spread the gospel, and to build one another up. And so this is the beautiful idea of gifts. Don't confuse your gifts, your spiritual gifts, with spiritual maturity. Just because you've got a good gift doesn't mean you're spiritually mature. Use what you've got in love. If you can't speak in love, if you can't use your gifts in love, you've missed the point of God blessing you with that thing. Man. You know, I, I love Amy Carmichael uh, was a missionary to India. And I've read a few of her books, and uh, this precious woman, 
devoted her life to the Indian people from the time that she was a very young woman. One of the things that she said that's always stuck with me is that you can give without loving. You can give a gift to somebody and not love them at all. I mean, you might, there might be a guy on the corner of the interstate and you give him five bucks and you don't, you don't really, maybe you're doing it to be kind or because he's made eye contact with you and you guys got locked in and you're like, oh crap, man, I got to give him some money now. He sees me, you know? So everybody, I watch this man. I go home every day, exit 86, and I'm making a left there and there's always somebody standing there with money, okay? Sometimes I've given money, but I sure don't do it every time. But you see people act so funny when they get in a car and they're the one, the dude's standing right here and this is the car right here and he's looking in their window at them. And they're like... You know, I mean, they're doing everything they can not to notice the guy. I get it. I mean, you do too. But here's the deal. You can give that man something without loving him. But what Amy Carmichael says is that you cannot love without giving. And there's power in that. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. Not the type of love that God has given you. Not the Jesus agape style of love that the New Testament is talking about. The 1 Corinthians 13 speaks of. You, when you love somebody, you give. You sacrifice. You make use of. You do. Love does. And so... Love was, is, and always will be the ultimate measure of our maturity in Christ. We use what we've been given as a love offering to the Father. And we use what we've got as a charitable offering to men and women, boys and girls, for the purpose of redemption. Last thing is sacrifices. This is verse 3. Paul says, and let me, let me repeat this to you guys so you don't forget where we are. Just as words spoken without love are noise... And just as gifts without love are worthless, so sacrifice without love has no return. It doesn't bring anything back to you. Paul says, if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but do not have love, I gain nothing. He uses two phrases here to kind of uh, uh, point out the extremity of the sacrifice that we're supposed to be striving towards. Now here's the deal, guys. If God calls you to give all, you give all, right? God hasn't called us, he hasn't called me to give away my entire income because then my family would be without. Now, if God called me to do that, there's a response required there. It's not an easy response. But God understands that we're to take care of ourselves, to protect ourselves, to be discerning, to be wise with our money. But listen, this is the extreme case. This is what's to be strived towards in these two instances. And the first thing he says is, even if I give all I possess to the poor. Listen, guys, money is one of those things that has such a grip on some people's souls that we're unable to even hear about it without getting offended. It's not talked about in church because people think that churches are these greedy, money-hungry uh, establishments that are only about fleecing people and robbing them. In no way is that the case. Not at this church. The money that's used and spent and given is returned and divided by the Lord as with the loaves and bread, the loaves and fishes, and, and, and it's given back out. I mean, it is used for so many wonderful kingdom purposes. The Bible teaches that it's more blessed to give than to receive. 
What happens is when I begin to hoard money and see it as only mine, not only am I selfish, but I'll never truly understand the blessing that you can get to give. How blessed are you when you are able to give and give and give and do it joyfully, cheerfully, even hilariously, as the Bible says. Be a good steward with your money. Be wise with your money, but be generous with it as well. It's possible to give with wrong motives. Maybe that's out of guilt, out of compulsion. Maybe uh, only for what you could get in return. But Christians are called to give freely, willingly, out of the abundance of all we have. Is there a reward for those who give? Absolutely. Jesus spoke about the rewards for those who give. But your motivation has to be right, guys. If your hand isn't motivated by your heart, man, it's going to be given wrong. It has to be done out of love. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 6. When you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And I always think openly. I mean, He blesses in abundance. He heaps it upon you. So there's a reward for giving, but it's not automatic. To love when you give of your gifts, or, or your sacrifices, I mean, you have to, it has to cost you something. You remember the rich young man and the, the widow with her mites? Listen, there's a difference here. Jesus called this young man who was so full of himself. He comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, go and sell all your possessions and give them to the poor. And the young man said, no, not going to happen. I got too much. And then there was a little lady as all these people were jingling, jangling their money around and being like, $25 in the pot, you know, and they're walking around so everybody can see what they're giving. Hey, did you know I gave $1,000 today at church? And other people are like, whoa, man, I can only afford to give 20 You know, and some people are like bragging about what they give to others. Hope, hope to God nobody does that. I don't think anybody does. But there's Jesus watching these people, and there are people that are flaunting and vaunting what they've got. And then there's this poor little lady who puts her last two mites in the offering plate. No fanfare. Nobody's even paying attention to her. And yet Jesus says of her, she's given more than anyone. Because she gave out of her poverty, out of her necessity. It cost her more than it cost anybody else. Because a lot of us have money that we can spare. We have disposable income that it wouldn't hurt us if we gave it. But what gift would hurt to give? Not just talking about money, but time, talents, or the treasure that you've been given. Does it cost you anything, or is it just easy, and therefore it doesn't mean a whole lot? You could be a faithful giver, but if you don't give in love, if you don't give with the right motive, it's not doing a lot of good. It's not doing a lot of earthly or eternal good. Uh, I share two examples and finish up here. C.T. Studd. I don't know if you guys ever heard of that name before. <laughs> Probably not. He was a missionary that lived... Uh, I think he was born around 1860. He lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And uh, C.T. Studd, Charles Studd, um, inherited at the time in the late 1800s several hundred thousand dollars from his father 
his father bequeathed that money to him when he died. And uh, C.T. Studd felt compelled by God to give it all away before he got married. And so uh, he kept back a couple of thousand dollars. And he presented it to his wife on their wedding day. This is what she said. Man, don't you love women like this? Charlie, what did the Lord tell the rich man to do? Sell it all. Well, then we will. We'll start clear with the Lord at our wedding. And they gave that few thousand dollars away too. Their testimony that day was, Henceforth, our bank is in heaven. We'll trust God for what we have. We thank God that now we are in that proud position to say, Silver and gold, I have none. And then he and his wife went off to Africa as missionaries where they remained for the remainder of their lives. Guess what the money that they gave away did? This is unbelievable. They had prayed about where to give that money away to. They gave it to the D.L. Moody Evangelistic Society and it was put in place to build the Moody Bible Institute. They gave some to William Booth, who founded the Salvation Army. They gave some to George Mueller, who founded one of the most famous orphanages in history. And they gave some to Hudson Taylor, who used it to go to China and, and found the China Inland Mission. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives were touched, because that's what Jesus does. When you give out a love, when you sacrifice something, and it's done out of the right spirit, like that little boy that showed up that day and all the disciples were, man, send those people home. There's 5,000 men here. No telling how many women and children. We don't have that kind of food. We can't afford that kind of food. There's no place to buy that kind of food. Even if there was, they couldn't make that food for these people in this amount of time. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. See this little boy? And he took his loaf and his fish, and he blessed it and he broke it. That, that little boy obviously was giving willingly. And Jesus multiplied it. So much so that there were, what, 12 baskets of food left over? One for each of the disciples? There is so much eternal power that we have never tapped into. Because we give, but it's not always giving in love. There's a sacrifice that's here. That thing that Paul said, he said, I'd even surrender my body to the flames, but if I don't have love. Listen, guys, God's not calling you to kill yourself or to go out and just become a martyr. But he is calling you to make an ultimate sacrifice. That when you come to Jesus Christ, that there is nothing that you would hold back from him, even if it meant giving your all. At personal cost, at sacrifice, at surrender, at, at struggle, that you give it all to him. Polycarp, anybody ever heard that name? Polycarp lived in the first and second century. Um, he was an early Christian who would give up his life for Jesus Christ. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. He and John, John the Revelator, were friends. John dies. Polycarp is a young man. But he sits under the teaching of John and he's soaking it in. Can you imagine? John's your preacher or your Sunday school teacher. And Polycarp, here he is. And what happened with Polycarp, he, um, 
he was 86 years old. He lived a long, full life. But at 86, he was arrested for his faith. And he was told to renounce the teaching of Christianity or to be burned at the stake. It wasn't a pleasant time for Christians. He, the, the two guards who captured him, he, out of his house, he fed them. And he asked them, he said, may I please have an hour for prayer before you take me in? And they're like, sure. And Polycarp wound up taking two hours, so much so that for posterity's sake, as history is recorded, it says the guards said, we are sorry that we are the ones who have captured this man. Polycarp was then brought into the stadium in Rome and was told, swear by the genius of Caesar, repent and say, away with the atheists, which is what the Romans called anyone who refused to worship the emperor. Polycarp waved his hand at the stadium. Can you imagine the guts? I mean, the Holy Spirit power, literally, that's at place here. This man, there's a stake. There's wood beneath it. That's where you're going. And uh, I can't imagine. I mean, you know that they're fixing to kill you in front of all these spectators. And all you got to do is say, listen, Jesus Christ is a liar. I renounce Christianity. I have nothing more to do with it. I've lived a lie. Boom. Save my life. And Polycarp, here's what he says. He waves his hand at the stadium full of people. And indicating at them, he says, away with the atheists. The, the magistrate that just told him that, he's like pointing to him, he's like, I guarantee, away with the atheists. I'm pointing at you, bro. And Polycarp replied, 86 years I've been God's servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I then blaspheme my king who saved me? If you vainly suppose that I will swear by Caesar and pretend that you do not know who I am, then hear me plainly. I am a Christian. But if you would learn the teachings of Christianity, then assign a day and give me a hearing. You threaten me with fire that burns for only a season and after a little while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of the future judgment and eternal punishment which is reserved for the ungodly. So why do you delay? Come do what you will. And Polycarp was burned alive at the stake. What a testimony of courage and faith in the face of death. C.T. Studd gave away all his money. Polycarp surrendered his body to the flames. And guys, we gasp at their sacrifice. We think, how could that even be possible? Surely not today anybody would have to do that. We can hardly imagine giving away uh, half our money, even a tenth of our money, because sometimes that's too much to ask. We shudder at the thought of a painful death, uh, death but even C.T. Studd and Polycarp, as great as their sacrifices were, if they did not do it out of love for God and neighbor, then they gained no reward. That's what Paul's saying. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but I have not love, I gain nothing. My, 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 my people, right? My, my brothers and sisters, I, I tell you this, because it doesn't matter about your speech, your gifts, your sacrifices. You can do all these things and look so good in front of people. But what are you doing before the Lord? If your stuff isn't motivated by love, man, it's noisy gongs. It's worthlessness. It has no eternal value. No words you speak, no talents you possess, no gifts you give, no sacrifices you make have any value apart from this agape love of Christ. 
I'll say it once more. Nothing you say, nothing you have, and nothing you do is of any eternal or heavenly value apart from love because love is this measure of all things. If I teach Sunday school or I preach sermons or I visit the sick, if I don't do it in love, I've not done anything. If I work my job, raise my kids, support my family, but have not love, I've gained nothing. If I accomplish all that I set out to do, realize all my dreams, meet all my goals and objectives in life, but have not love, I accomplish nothing. That's what Paul's saying. So how do you measure your life? Is it money? Is it status? Is it beauty? Is it how many friends or likes you get on social media? Is it accomplishments? The biblical way to measure our lives, all that we say, all that we have, all that we do, is by love. We don't want to wait until the end of our lives to suddenly realize that we've been using the wrong measure all along. That it's been about me, how I can get ahead, how I can advance myself, how I can make myself better and greater and higher and stronger and more. Guys, let it be about God and others. May God help us to measure our lives according to that which is truly going to last, and that's His love. I want to pray with you. Brian said this thing that stuck out last week. Uh, It stood out to me. He said, the world understands love as tolerance. As long as we'll jump on a bandwagon, put a black circle on our our Facebook profile photo, or um, say that we're behind a cause, or maybe um, stick a rainbow flag on our car, or even a cross on our car, whatever it is, we, we, we say we're for things. God never said in his word that they will know you by how much you tolerate them. He said they will know you by your love. What you say, what you do, what you give, who you are. I wonder if friends were to talk about you And maybe it's the day of your funeral or your memorial service and you're not there to hear. I wonder if they would describe you as a person who was loving, generous, who built other people up, an encourager, somebody who loved Jesus Christ with all they had. Guys, if you look forward to the end of your life and you leave this world And you've done nothing to make other people's lives better. You've done nothing to share eternity with anyone. You've wasted a good life. If you've not shared Jesus, if you've not lived for Jesus, if you've not spoken up for Jesus, man, you can do lots of things. But the eternal value of those is diminished. God so loved you that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. He who committed no sin gave Himself for you so that you might become the righteousness of God. Guys, what sacrifice are you giving? What are you saying? How are you using your gifts? Man, do it in love. That's the cry today. Give in love. Be loving towards someone. Sacrifice for them. 
Make it cost something. Even if it's painful, give up some of you to bless some of them. Do what you can to glorify God. Be united, not divided in the body. Show the love of Christ, even if people are going to make fun of you for it. Live the love of Christ, even if people will ridicule you. Share the love of Jesus. Maybe the world will hate you. But Jesus said, they've hated me first. And for us to take heart, because he's overcome this world. So God, I pray that you bless your people today. If our hearts are full of ourselves, maybe if we've lost our first love, maybe if our love has been dwindling and we feel like our love tank is on E, this morning that you would give us a revival of love, that you would fill up our hearts and our souls and our minds and let our bodies be responding to what you have called us to. Not just noise but a voice in the wilderness that's speaking the truth. The voices that's standing on the rooftop and shouting to the joy of the Lord, the glory of God, that there is hope for mankind, that there is a Savior who lives. Forgiveness is possible. Eternal life is available. And Lord, let us use these gifts that you've given us, God, not to hide them under a bushel, not to hide them underneath a cloak, not to let them burn out, but God, to step up. What the world needs today is love. God, this world needs to know Jesus. What better picture of Jesus than these people that are sitting here, that are listening, that are assembled together in churches and congregations all across this world. Call us to be your voice, to be your hands, to be your feet. Call us to be your message. Call us to be your missionaries. Call us, Lord, and use us. And let us do it all with love. Real love. Sacrificial love. Agape love. Jesus love. Heavenly love. Pour it out into us and let us be conduits to pour it out to others. And this we ask in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.